Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. All right. Hello, everyone. We are continuing our study today, God and Wednesday. We had an introduction last week to let you know what this class was going to be about, and it is a 13, really 12-week. We'll have an interruption for VBS. 12-week class that we are going to be having on the attributes of God and especially how they relate to your life on Wednesday. Not just Sunday morning when we're saying the right things, but Wednesday when we have to do the right things. So we're going to be looking at 10 of God's attributes. Today we're looking at the first, which is one of my favorites. I don't know if you're allowed to have favorites of God's attributes, but it's one that's very meaningful to me. So it's God's independence. So the title of today's lesson, sorry, I know I don't have printouts and notes. It's not really my thing. I'm sorry. I know it is for a lot of you. I very much apologize. But if you want to put it on a blank piece of paper and take notes, wonderful. But today our lesson is called God's Independence, Your Joy. God's Independence, Your Joy. So. As always, I'm going to try my best to leave a little time at the end, so if you have questions while we're going along or if something's not clear, jot that down or remember that, and when we get to the end, you're welcome to ask that. I know that can be intimidating in a large setting like this, so you can come ask me after if you'd rather, that's fine. But if you want to benefit everyone by an answer, feel free to ask that. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into the lesson. Oh God, the God who is there, we are praying to you. We are not praying to a notion in our imagination. I'm not praying to the people who are in this room. They hear these words, but these words are not for them. I'm not praying to them. I'm not praying to a distant deity that cannot be known. And I'm not praying to a material universe that is material only, with nothing supernatural. God, I'm praying to you. You are a God who exists. Without that fact, without that attribute, there's no other attribute. There's nothing else. If you don't exist, then what are we doing? But you exist. In fact, you exist Before us, you predate us. We exist only because you exist. We exist because you existing made us to exist. Lord, it breaks our heart, the degree of doubt in the world and sometimes in our own hearts when it comes to even something as simple as you existing. What a slander. To not even afford you that characteristic that you are. If we should doubt anything, we should doubt that we exist. (laughs) Not that you exist. You, the most fundamental of all beings. So, I want to pray that you would help us, Lord, to be a small candle in a dark world. To be a place where there is faith and growing faith. In you, the God who is, that you would give us a clear 
guidance for where to place our faith, the substance of what we believe is not some vague deity, but is you yourself, the God of the burning bush, the God who visits his people, and the God who is present right here. Lord, so many of our problems come from not firmly, consistently believing even that you exist or regarding you as if you did not. And I want to pray that you would help all of us who are here. Our joy sometimes is strong, sometimes is weak, and most of that corresponds to whether our faith is strong or weak. Do we remember you on Wednesday or not, Lord? But we can't do it without you. And you who give us, gave us and give us being, you in whom we live and move and have our being, we want to ask also this favor that you would please, on Wednesday, help us to consciously remember that we're not living our lives without you. But you are there and are more important than us or anything that's happening. And I pray that that would be the firm basis of all our joy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Jaden is in a hard marriage. When she and Devin were dating... Everything was very exciting. It was actually the first time she really felt alive. Jaden had grown up in a family where there were more children than there was money, and she felt that she had missed out on a lot of opportunities, that she never really had a ton of her parents' attention. She grew up very lonely, feeling as if she were overlooked. And on top of this, she grew up without much of a sense of security because her parents were always stressing about the finances. So insecurity about finances and lonely because she's not getting attention. Well, she goes to college and right afterward, she meets a young businessman, Devin. And Devin has a very nice job, makes more money than she could dream of. And amazingly to her, Devin is very interested in Jaden. They begin dating and it's the first time she feels alive because for the first time someone's giving her attention, someone's valuing her, not among others, but her, someone's cherishing her, and it comes with this lavishing on of gifts, a sense of financial security as well. So this season of Jaden's life is incredible. She feels alive. It quickly develops into marriage. And it is the dream wedding that Jaden never thought she'd have. But they have the resources. Then they go to the Bahamas for a honeymoon. And Jaden thinks she's found life. And this continues for about one year. About a year into marriage, Devin gets a promotion. Yet another promotion. With more money. However... This promotion requires even more of Devin's time and attention. Now he's traveling very often for weeks at a time. But that's not really what bothers Jaden. What bothers her is now about a year into marriage and on, when he does come back from his trips, he just doesn't seem that interested in her anymore. He used to be exhilarated just to see her. Now he walks in the door and gives her very little attention. His attitude toward her has quickly changed to one of annoyance, Maybe disgust, and the worst of all for Jaden, one of boredom. And now she is at home while he's on these long trips, suspecting and wondering if he's bored with me 
Maybe he's interested in the young, attractive businesswomen that he's spending all of this time with, but if she tries to even bring that up, he explodes, and it just makes things worse. So he's gone on another trip, and she is there at home, scrolling through her Instagram feed, looking at all these other couples who are thriving, who seem to love each other, and saying, why has God put me here, brought up where I don't have security and I don't feel loved, and then I finally, by God's kindness, come into this relationship where for the first time I feel loved and security and cherished. And then God's just going to take that away again? The question for us today is, is there hope for Jaden? This is a made-up story. Sorry if you know a Jaden or a Devin. This is entirely made up. But the experiences, I hope you know, those experiences are very real. You experience different shades of them, and some people experience something very similar to that. I bring that story up because the argument of this class is that a circumstance like that, which Jaden has to live through on Wednesday, very unflattering, unglamorous type of a situation, somewhat hopeless feeling situation, kind of like the ones you experience on Wednesdays. The argument of this class is that there is hope for Jaden because God is who he is. If God was something other than he actually is, there would be no hope for Jaden. If God is who he says he is in the scriptures, then there is hope for Jaden. And the goal of this class is to simply unpack that by looking at individual attributes of God and saying, how does this attribute give Jaden and give you hope in the hard situations of Wednesday? The one attribute that we're going to look at today, that we're going to attach, we'll return later to Jaden's story, that we're going to attach to what she's dealing with, is the attribute that we call God's independence. This goes by other names as well. Another one, the one I typically use, but it's not as familiar, so I'm not going to focus on that one, is aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. That is from the Latin awe and say, and it's simply pointing out that God exists of himself. He doesn't depend on anyone else. See, independence, same idea. Aseity, independence. Other terms that mean the same thing would be self-existence, exists of himself. We could say God's self-sufficiency. He's enough for himself, doesn't need anything else or anyone else. A.W. Pink uses the term solitariness, which just highlights the fact that God by himself, solitary, is satisfied and happy and needs nothing. So you can pick any of those terms. They all have pros and cons, but they're all getting at the same idea, the same attribute of God. If you remember from last week, an attribute is not some dusty tome sitting on the top of your academic bookshelf. An attribute is just another way of saying Something that's true about the God you love and serve. So what we're saying is true about God today is this idea that God does not need anyone. God needs only himself. God exists of himself. He is sufficient of himself. He is happy in himself. He existed before anything else that he created. He did not make things because he was lonely. This is God's independence. Grudem gives, Wayne Grudem gives this definition, quote, 
God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything, yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. And that's thrown in so you don't misunderstand what we're saying. God's independent. That doesn't mean you can't have any relationship with him. You can't please him or glorify him. Certainly you can. But it's important. We're focusing on this first part. It's this. God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. So what we want to do now is unpack this biblical idea, this attribute about God, which we call independence. And then we're going to turn over back toward Jaden and your life and say, is this just abstract thinking? Or does this give you hope and fuel and change you on Wednesday? It's the latter, okay? That's what's true. So I want to show you that. So let's begin. The first part of this class is I just want to show you from Scripture so you know I'm not making this up, that this really is who God is. This is true about God. If you have a Bible, you could flip it open to the first page, Genesis chapter 1. The independence or aseity of God is in some ways the very first thing we learn about God in reading the Bible. Here's Genesis 1. Many of you know this first verse, and it is essential. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. A few things to notice about that verse. In the beginning. It's so easy to read past that, but you say, beginning of what? Not beginning of everything, because in the beginning, God. God was there. God, if you know causality, cause and effect, God has to come in some sense before this moment that we call the beginning. So there's a beginning before the beginning because God's there. So he has to be there in the beginning, God. But it's the beginning of everything that is not God. It says the heavens and the earth. And when it says in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. That means that before the beginning, there were no heavens and no earth. And as far as we know from Scripture, that encompasses everything that's not God. Heaven, earth. Spiritual, angelic beings, heaven, demons who fall from heaven. Heaven, earth, the earth that we live in here. So that encompasses all creation that we are aware of. And if God creates it in the beginning, that means that God, number one, has to be there, what we would say, before the beginning to cause it. And we would also say, as far as we know, nothing else was there. Does that make sense? So he creates it. Here's A.W. Pink speaking of this idea. Quote, <laughs> this, this just blows my mind. I hope this blows your mind. There was a time, if time it could be called, when God in the unity of his nature, though subsisting equally in three divine persons, simply saying he's a trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, okay, God, there was a time when he dwelt all alone, in the beginning God. There was no heaven where his glory is now particularly manifested. There was no earth to engage his attention. There were no angels to him his praises. No universe to be upheld by the word of his power. There was nothing, no one but God. 
And that, not for a day, a year, or an age, but from everlasting. And this, I say this, but what does this mean? During a past eternity. What is that? Okay, during a past eternity, God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, in need of nothing. When you think back before the creation of the heavens and the earth, when there's only God, being honest with ourselves, what do you think? It's beyond us to really comprehend. I mean, what are we supposed to think? Space itself was not created. What are we supposed to think? It seems like space and time, as far as we know, scientifically today, are connected. So did time even exist? That's why even for Pink, he says, if time it could be called, whatever that was before the beginning of time, I don't know. But he's saying, when you think of God before the beginning, existing by himself, which clearly he did, in your mind, do you try to imagine God maybe as like a light or something, right? And then just in this vast stretch of outer space. That's what I think of. And maybe I'm the only one who thinks of that, but I'm just trying to imagine God by himself. So I'm thinking of outer space stretching on forever and ever. And there's God all by himself. And if you have this picture of God, you think, he's got to be lonely. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be out in outer space floating around by myself. And like he said, how long? A past eternity? It's not just for a few minutes. Forever and so if you have that picture of God in your mind, which is kind of the best we can do in our limited way, you're thinking, wow, that seems pretty bleak. That's like pictures of earth from outer space and everything's all black and dark. And there's like us, like tiny little light. And it makes you feel like, whoa, <laughs> like that's a very weird way to look at life. And if you think of God that way, right in the middle of this great vastness of nothing, then you're going to think of God as, which is a common view or misconception of God, that he's lonely. This is why some people have taught and do teach today that the reason God created the world was out of this loneliness. I mean, if you're out there in outer space all by yourself forever and ever, you would want to create us too, Right? That's a view that comes along. The problem with this view of God being lonely and alone in this great vast space is that there's no space. There's no space there for him to be alone in. None whatsoever. You might think as well, oh, to be alone for so long. He's got to be dreadfully bored. The problem is for so long. Is there even time? What is a past eternity? <laughs> Time as we experience it as, again, this is philosophical and I don't know. Most of this is just, look, I don't know. <laughs> but time as we experience it like waiting. You're just thinking of yourself in space, waiting an hour, waiting an hour. Have you ever just tried to wait an hour doing nothing? Maybe some of you say, that's my sweet spot. <laughs> but for others, it's dreadful. Like, imagine doing that for an eternity and you think, God must be bored because it's so long. God must be lonely because it's so vast and it's just him. The independence of God teaches us that that's 100% wrong. That is a wrong way of thinking about God before the creation of the world. So that's a common picture of God. But now let's look at the biblical picture of God before the beginning of the world. 
We don't have tons of scripture on it because as you see right here, the Bible story itself begins in the beginning of our world. So it doesn't tell us everything before, but it does later when Jesus comes into the world and reveals wonderful mysteries to us. This is one of the things that he expresses. Let me just give you two verses. Both of these are in John 17. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer just before he goes to die. He's praying for his disciples, including you if you're a Christian, and he reveals something absolutely phenomenal in verses 5 and 24. Look at verse 5. This is his prayer to the Father. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We don't know a lot about what was going on before the world existed, but we have this at least one clear statement here. And Jesus' prayer is, God, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Don't think of God alone in outer space, bored over a long period of time. This is what we would call, if you're okay with this big term, but it's important, inter-Trinitarian joy. Inter, inter, I-N-T-E-R, it means between different members, right? Inter, interact. Trinitarian, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God subsisting, as he said, three persons. And Jesus' prayer is, before the world existed, way back then, I had a glory with you, the Son and the Father. Glory, not darkness, <gasps> boredom, glory. Glory is hard to define, but it is the essential thing. It is God's majesty, his power, his magnificence. It is a fullness. It is what we are created for. All my children whom I've created for my glory, says God. It is the conscious being beholding the glory, the power, the imminence of God and being satisfied. And what Jesus is saying is that beholding of glory, that enjoying glory that we're made to enjoy, he was already enjoying in the Trinity before the world existed. It was with you I had glory. The Father being satisfied in the glory of the Son. And we can assume this happened among all the members of the Trinity. So none of this thought of cold, dark outer space. Forget it. There's no space. Forget it. But what we do know about that time, however it looked, it didn't look like anything. I don't know how you'd even think of it, is that there was glory. So don't think of like dull, dark, cold. Think of bright, colorful, like Deb making these great paintings down here. They're colorful. You walk in and you see the color. Wow. That's how we're to imagine, although it's not the same kind of color and perception. There's no eyeballs, okay? But that's the idea of what you have before the world existed in God himself, self-contained. Glory. Now look at chapter 17, verse 24. At the end of it, Jesus says, you, Father, loved me before the foundation of the world. Not only is there glory before the world's created, but what else is there? Love. 
There's love. Love, that meaningful, satisfying experience that even we have as a shadow of God's inner Trinitarian love. So you think of the greatest romantic experience you've ever had, your first kiss, your wedding day, or apart from that, just familial love within a family if you've experienced that, or just a really good roommate or a friend. You're not thinking that's dull, bleak. That's the spice of life. I mean, that's the stuff that wakes you up. Even physiologically, when you're in love, things are happening, your heart's racing. and Wow. And that's just a dull shadow on earth of this substance, which is the inter-Trinitarian love, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, for a past eternity. So whatever you think of the past eternity with God by himself as a trinity, it's not dull and cold, it's meaningful. It's full of life. It's full of color. It's full of the archetype of the most meaningful parts of your life. You shouldn't think of your life right now like, wow, there's, all the, there's a Grand Canyon. There are different parts of the world. There's so many rich experiences. There's such a variety. Look at the plant life. Look at the animal life. Look at my relationships. Wow, all this rich variety. Now, let me think of God before the foundation of the world. Just like monochrome, <laughs> boring. No, look, your life's boring. God's life before the foundation of the world's not boring. Your life's boring in comparison. It is. There was glory and there was love. I'm going to quote Wayne Grudem again on this. Quote, referring to these passages we just talked about, he says, quote, These passages indicate explicitly what we can learn elsewhere from the doctrine of the Trinity, namely, that among the persons of the Trinity, there has been perfect love and fellowship and communication for all eternity. The fact that God is three persons, yet one God, means that there was no loneliness or lack of personal fellowship on God's part before creation. In fact, the love and interpersonal fellowship and the sharing of glory have always been and will always be far more perfect than any communion we as finite human beings will ever have with God. And as the second verse quoted above speaks of the glory, reverse from us, the glory the Father gave to the Son, we should also realize there is a giving of glory by the members of the Trinity to one another that far surpasses any bestowal of glory that could ever be given to God by all creation. <laughs> Does that make any sense to you? This is, this is amazing. The sharing of love, the sharing of glory. Love and glory... Just the shadows of them in our world are the things that give life meaning. It's the rich stuff. It's the stuff you live for. It's the stuff that gets you out of bed. The song that really inspires you, that really moves you, that brings you to tears. It's love, it's human relationships, or it's glory. There's a magnificence to it. And you could go across the board. Everything you find meaningful that's good in this world is a shadow of the inter-Trinitarian love and sharing of glory that happened for a past eternity. That wasn't boring. God existing in and of himself. So this is really the adjustment we have to make in our minds. And look, God knows we're finite. So we can't, you can't really picture in your mind 
before the foundation of the world. If there's no space, assuming maybe there's no time or it operates differently, you can't picture it. There's not a way to do that. So you just have to take this by faith. But what you want to not do is try to picture it in a way that makes it dreadful and boring. Eliminate that from your mind. That is like a golden calf type of thing. Let's grind that up, burn that, make the children of Israel drink it, whatever. That, that's no good. What we need to do instead is take by faith the voice that speaks from the mountain, the voice that speaks from Scripture that assures us if you think of the past eternity, God by himself, as in any way deficient, boring, uninteresting, then what are you going to think of God himself after creation? That's your view of God now. It's the same God, you see? And what the Bible claims is that before creation, there was no lack. Because God was independent, self-sufficient. A seity existed by himself, of himself, satisfied in himself, had no need, had no lack. So you just need to put in your mind, maybe this will help as an exercise by comparison, what are the things that you find make your life so rich and meaningful? It might be for you, think of your children. Holding your child for the first time, that feeling that that gave you, it could be in a romantic relationship, it could be that first kiss, it could be the wedding day, the powerful feelings that gave you. It wasn't just physiological of your heart racing. It wasn't just that. There was more. Or even as we read news of what's happening in Ukraine and you hear stories of bravery and that moves you. There's something meaningful there. All of these meaningful parts of life. You have to take those, all the color, all the vibrancy, all the life, all the animation, all the beauty, all the goodness, all the grandeur and glory, the beautiful mountain sceneries. If you went out to Colorado and you saw those, wow. Take all of those things and realize that those are like putting the earth next to the sun. If you've seen those diagrams, it could fit like a bajillion earths in the sun. It's massive. And that's what all of that meaningfulness in our life is to God in himself, by himself, without you, without me. That's the independence of God. Specifically, before creation. Now, if that's true, as we've seen here in Scripture, then we do come to a question, which is, if God's so satisfied in himself, why did he create anything else? That gets us from before creation now to what we read in Genesis 1, in the beginning God created. But we want to know why. Like I've said, for many people, that's an easy answer. It's God was lonely. But again, that's because you're thinking of God the wrong way. He was not lonely. So if he wasn't lonely, and if he doesn't need us, why did he make us? It's a fair question. I'm going to reference now um, a little bit of a difficult theological, philosophical work, and you're welcome to go read it. Actually, I know Mike Schaus was very much impacted by this early in his Christian life back there. This was a very significant work in his life and has been for many people, but it's not easy reading, I assure you. I don't think I've worked through all of it yet. I haven't. But this is Jonathan Edwards, The End for Which God Created the World. He's using the word end to be a purpose, reason. So this is a work Jonathan Edwards wrote in the 1700s, and he's asking the question, what's the reason that God created the world? That's what we're asking, right? Why'd he do it? 
And Edwards gives this, if we summarize his answer in one word, here it is. So maybe you don't have to read it. You're welcome. But here's his answer. Himself. God is, as A.W. Tozer has said, his own reason for all he is and does. Love that. And that's true of creation as well. Let me read you just a section, two sections from Edwards here. And like I said, it's not the easiest reading, but we'll talk about it. Here's what he says in that little treatise. Quote, after all of his reasoning before, he says, thus it appears reasonable to suppose that it was God's last end, meaning his main purpose in making the world, that there might be a glorious and abundant emanation, coming from him, emanation of his infinite fullness of good outside of himself. Does that make sense to you? So this is his primary purpose in making you and this world. He's so satisfied within himself that he wants a glorious, abundant, full emanation of his own infinite fullness outside of himself that he can behold and be satisfied in. So it's not that he's satisfied in us as us, but even in being satisfied in his world, it's him being satisfied in the fact that he made that world out of his own glory. Heady stuff. And he says, the, dis the disposition, the tendency to communicate himself or diffuse his own fullness was what moved him to create the world. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? I don't know if you thought about that, but we're thinking about it now. What in God led him to create the world if he's satisfied in himself 100%? It was because he was so satisfied in himself that he wanted to. It's not that creation is some kind of weird emanation of God. That's not what he's saying. He created it, ex nihilo, out of nothing. He creates it. But it's an overflow of his own fullness. This is the passage in Edwards that I know the best from this treatise. It's quoted elsewhere. It's my favorite. It's one sentence. Summarizes it all for you. Here it is. This is what you remember. Quote, it is no argument of the emptiness or deficiency of a fountain that it is inclined to overflow. It's not evidence that God had a need and a lack that he overflows into creating a world. It's an overflow. It's not him trying to get something from us. I need glory from you. It's his own glory overflowing out of himself, emanating, and he creates the world. I know that this is kind of heady stuff, and you don't have to remember all the terms, okay? But this is what you do have to remember for the sake of your Christian health. God is not a needy God. He didn't make the world because he's needy. Quite the opposite. We're needy. God is self-satisfied. So much so that that overflows into creating the world. That's two completely different ways of thinking about God. And in America today, many people think one... God has needs. We give him needs. But what we're saying to you is, no, 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 please. Instead, adopt the attitude of Paul when he spoke to the Athenians. He says, it's not as though God is served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all life, breath, and everything. See how he's saying the same thing that we're saying? 
But there is a very common view that if you become a missionary, God owes you because <laughs> you're doing his work. You're sacrificing a lot, you know. He better make your life good and give you success because he owes you. Or if you make sacrifices, if you pay, if you give sacrificially to the church or to others, man, God's in your debt now because you're, you're serving him with human hands and God's in heaven needing your money to accomplish his purposes or needing you to become a missionary or how are people going to hear? That is a view of God and I'm begging you, take your big mental eraser and just you erase that out of your mind. That is not a good thought of God. The independence of God is simply us saying God is full of abundant, satisfied, rich, and not needy. You can see this biblically then as a consequence. If this is true, what we said, and, and by the way, you can kind of, this may be stretching this a little bit, but you can almost see an echo of what Edwards is saying in Genesis 1, because you remember every time God creates, part of the formula that we have is, and God saw it, and he saw that it was good. God sees what he made, and he sees that it's good. And at the very end, he saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. This looks like a God who's looking at what he made and is satisfied in it that he made a good thing. So that's what Edwards is arguing. He's satisfied in what he has done. All right, you see this now. If you, if you take this view of God, independence, Practically, this is going to change how you view a lot of things. So number one, think about redemption itself, the idea of salvation, coming to Christ, being saved from your sins, saved from the wrath of God. Deuteronomy 7.7 7 gives us the view of salvation we hold if we have an independent God. This is God talking about Israel, whom he'd chosen in the Old Testament. And amazingly, this is what he says to them, Israel. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you because you were the fewest of all the peoples. So God's not up in heaven needing a nation to uphold his name. And he looks down and here's big old Egypt, dominant, building those pyramids. Here's a big old nation over here, Mesopotamia over there. Goes, ah, Egypt's pretty strong, I'll take Egypt. If God was a needy God, he would have taken Egypt. But instead, because God's not needy, he says, where will I put my grace? And he looks at Egypt and goes, oh, what's this? <laughs> Tiny little people enslaved by the Egyptians? And he chooses them. Why did he choose them? He says it right here. He says, the Lord set his love on you and chose you. There they are. He sets his love. It flows out from him. Sets his love. He chooses Israel. Why? Because the Lord loves you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see that? Am I the only one who sees that? Okay. The because is giving you an explanation. And it's an explanation of why the Lord set his love on you. And it says, the reason the Lord set his love on you is not because you're so big. And he goes, oh, you. It's because the Lord loves you. <laughs> and I think what a great picture of salvation when you have an independent God. Why does God love you? Why did God choose you? Because he looked down and went, oh, this guy's got his life together. He'd be a great Christian. I'm going to bring him in the kingdom. He'd be a good missionary. He'll raise lots of funds. No, God looked down at you and you were addicted to drugs or you were ruining your life. You were the enslaved little people. And then he sets his love on you in eternity past, really, but he set his love on you. Why? Because he set his love on you. He doesn't need an external reason. God is his own reason. 
for all he is and all he does. It overflowed from his own rich fullness and you got splashed by it. That's your salvation. One way to say this that helps me in my mind is that the love of God in salvation is a love that is pushed out from God. It's not a love that we pull from God. So it's not, if you're good enough, get your act together, you'll pull God's love down to yourself and be saved. No, but rather, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because it's flowing out of God. We hinder it by our sin in some earthly sense, you know. But it's from God flowing out, boom, and it hits us. That's salvation. I mean we hinder it by God only in an earthly sense. His grace is irresistible. I don't deny that at all. Here's some passages that reinforce this. Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions. Why would you do this for Israel so sinful? For my own sake, for me. I do this for you, for me. And I know this doesn't deny, you turn on the Christian radio, and there are many good songs, okay? But you turn on the Christian radio, and it's, wow, you know, I'm more lovable than I ever thought. <laughs> That's a, some of the force of it is just like, I'm a very lovable, you know, don't be so hard on yourself, go easier on yourself, you're not so bad. And I get it. Some of us have issues being hard. Okay, that's fine. But God's love here, I forgive you. Why? Because we almost make it into a romantic relationship where it's like, because of your eye color, you know, it's because of your hair color. It's because I love this trait about you. That's not true. <laughs> it's like really nasty mangled hair and your eyes are plucked out or something. It's, that's, that's what God's dealing with. And he says, I forgive your transgressions for my sake. Isaiah 48, 11. I don't know how he can make it clear. He says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. And the it is not judging you with, with destroying you right now. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And the New Testament equivalent, you know Ephesians 2, 8 on. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your doing. You're not pulling it. It is a gift of God. He pushes it out. Let's make it clear. Not a result of works, so no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, which God prepared for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Even the good works are from God. <laughs> Here's your salvation. Here's your good works. Push you into them. <laughs> it's from God. So an independent God, that's, that's why we have good news and not bad news. That's why you can go to the most sinful people you know, yourself included, and you go to them and say, I don't care what you've done. It, it's irrelevant to me, whatever you've done, whatever. If it was you pulling God's love, maybe you're disqualified, but God pushes his love onto sinful people because that's where it's based in him. One more practical outflow of this is not just salvation. If you have an independent God, it's so free. But your joy. Let's talk about you as a Christian now. I just want to highlight one passage as we draw to the end here. This is Romans 8. The passage you know and love. Verses 31 onward. 
what I want you to see, it's like we talked about, love is such a meaningful part of life as a shadow of God's love. God's love for you is the basis of all real joy you have. Go think about that, but I'm pretty certain that's true. If you have real deep joy, it's God's love for you. So if you lived a life where you had to pull God's love, extract it out of a dry orange or something, squeeze that last drop out, then your life would be really miserable. And some of you live that way, and that's why your life's really miserable. But if you have an independent God whose love flows freely, abundantly from his heart, then you can know that his love for you is consistent. If you're in Christ, it doesn't change. Romans 8, this is what Paul says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's when you were ugly, sinful, nasty, gross. Nothing appealing about you. And at that point, God not just loved you, gave the most valuable thing he had, the son with whom he'd had perfect, glorious relationship and love from eternity past. He did that for you. If he did it when you were nasty, gross, ugly, yuck, well, now you're working on getting rid of the nasty, gross, ugly, yuck, but it's still clinging, you know, it's still there and you're working on it. And what Paul's argument is, if he did it back then, how will he not also with him now graciously give us all things? Who's going to bring a charge against you? God's the one who justifies. Who's going to condemn you? Christ is the one who died. He goes then into persecution. You may suffer. You may experience horrible things on earth. Some of you are experiencing horrible things. And then he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Why? Because of him who loved us. Neither death, life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Why? Because it's flowing out of his perfections and nothing on earth can stop it. It's just flowing onto your head. Even if you're under discipline from the Lord because you're wayward, if you're in Christ, that's love. <laughs> Everything coming to you from God is this love. And if you have this love, and if it's really a fullness, a generous love that can't be hindered or stopped, then you can rest your joy right there. You put it right there. And that's why your joy can survive every sort of season and experience. God is for you, didn't spare his son, justifies you. Let's return now as we end. Sorry, no questions. I knew I'd do this to you. You knew it too, so don't blame me, but... Let's return now to Jordan, or Jaden, sorry. Think about this for Jaden. Grows up lonely, insecure, and what does she find in Devin's love? She finds a security that we all want. Financial security, relational security. And it's the end of loneliness, someone who wants to know her, wants to know who she is, wants to be involved in her life, and knowing her, Loves her, has affection for her. These are all natural things we desire. That's what Jaden found in Devin's love. That's why her life gained color and vibrancy when they met. Now that's gone. And the question we ask is, is there any hope for Jaden? You say, well, yeah, there's hope. I mean, Devin could get his act together and start loving her again. <laughs> Certainly, but who's going to make that happen? Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Is there hope for Jaden, whether that happens or not? If everything we just said in this class about God is true, then the answer is yes. 
If you have a view of God that he's small, needy, and as long as you behave, go to church, at least on Easter and Christmas, then you'll at least get some blessings on your head. But that's it. Close the coin purse. If that's your view of God, then really all Jaden's got is Devin's love. That's the most meaningful thing she's got. Your advice to her is going to be divorce him, go try to find happiness somewhere else as it isn't working. If your view of God is a God who in an inter-Trinitarian satisfaction from eternity past is the substance of every dim shadow, including romantic love, and this God loves Jaden 100% with a full affection, this God promises a complete financial and relational security to Jaden that nothing can remove his love from her. This God promises in Matthew 6, seek his kingdom, he'll provide everything that you need. This God knows Jaden a lot more than Devin does. And this God loves Jaden a lot more than Devin does. And this God promises that after this brief sojourn of a life where he'll be with her the whole time, every day, every step, giving her love, assuring her, helping her, providing for her, that after this brief sojourn of a life, she'll enter into glory, somewhat like the inter-Trinitarian glory of eternity past, and there be fully satisfied in the vibrancy and the color, the fulfillment of the little things that she was trying to peck at, like a hen getting seed in Devin's love for her. If Jaden has that sort of God, and if she believes that about God, this Wednesday, then when Jaden's going to bed at night and say Devin just came back from one of his very long trips and that evening flies back in, comes in the door, she has every reason to be irritated, angry, upset, hopeless. He walks in the door and she's ordered his favorite meal and put it on the table. He walks in, he's looking at his phone. Hey, he says, looking at his phone, looks up, there's his favorite food. He's surprised. Okay, thanks. And that's it. She's going to bed that night. She's trying to love Devin using what she's receiving from the independent God. Not needing. God's not needy. She's not needy. She has God. And she's going to bed that night. And it's a moment of weakness because that happens. And she's still thinking, is there any hope for me? Am I hopeless? And then she calls to mind, No. I am more than a conqueror through this independent, self-sufficient, self-satisfied God who loves me. Let's pray. God, these are strong and large words, but when we are actually living on Wednesday, we don't usually feel so inspired or brave. And I want to pray, Lord, I don't want these to be wasted, and so I want to pray for all of us that this Wednesday when we are losing heart, when we feel joyless, hopeless, when our joy is suffering because we look at our earthly circumstance and it doesn't look like it has a bright future, I pray that you would help us to have by faith such a sense of your overflowing fullness that that itself would satisfy us. If that is enough to satisfy an infinite God, how could it not be enough to satisfy us who are so small. So please help us to open our eyes by faith and behold you as God in this way. And to take our joy, remove it from every devon of earth and set it firmly on your unfailing, unflickering, unflinching love that you bear for us and your commitment to our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.